0: Content warnings for this episode may include discussion of social dysphoria, misgendering, erasure, anti-Blackness, non-Christian spirituality and religion, emotional and psychological domestic abuse, cyber-stalking, Me Too, suicide ideation, sexual harassment and violence, ableism, fat antagonism, police and legal system, colorism, disordered eating.
1: Miyadi folks, welcome to Genderful, a talk show interviewing gender-diverse folks about their special interests.
0: The name of our show celebrates that gender expansiveness is wonderful.
1: Hi, I'm Gender Measter, and my pronouns are they, them.
0: Hi, I'm Atlas Phoenix, and my pronouns are also they, them. The focus of our show is to interview trans, non-binary, agender, and gender-diverse people regarding their special interests, passion projects, and resources for the gender-diverse community.
1: We want our audience to know that this show is hosted by two folks who also identify as non-binary, transmasculine, neurodivergent, and disabled, with a passion for telling trans stories. If you're new to our show, welcome.
0: We're delighted you're
1: here. At the end of this interview, we have Clouder Query, where we like to ask you a question related to this week's topic. We'd like to invite you, our listeners, to answer the Clouder Query on our social media platforms. This show is made possible by volunteers, tips and subscriptions. Shout
0: out to those helping us coordinate guests edit the podcast, moderate the live chat and post on our socials.
1: If you'd like to support the show with your time, please join our discord server and meet the community and get a regular digest of solidarity resources. If you'd like to catch us live, join us on Mondays at twitch.tv forward slash gendermaster. Show notes will appear in the edited version of the show on Fridays on both YouTube and podcasting platforms.
0: If you love the show, check out some of our earlier episodes. We invite you to remember that we are whole people with robust lives, friendships, challenges, and successes. We love and are loved, and we are delighted to share these stories with you.
1: As always, we kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of their identities. Your identities can change over time and are valid every step of the way. And if you think you're gender diverse, you are gender diverse. There are no social or medical prerequisites to be included in the community.
0: Jennifer would like to acknowledge the indigenous peoples and the unceded lands that the producers, host, and guests live and have dwelt upon. Today, we honor the Ojibwe and Dakota lands that I am seated on. And Denari, would you like to share where you are at, the lands that you are on?
2: Sure. Hi, I am on the ancestral and traditional Lenape land, colonially known as New York, particularly I'm in downstate New York and I was able to find the land acknowledgement that I usually share in my workshops. So I would like to share that. All right. If
3: that's okay.
0: Um, Yeah, that's fine,
2: thank you. You're welcome. As we endeavor to create virtual space for trans community today, I want to do more than just acknowledge that the work I do happens on the land of various native nations. All of us in this space arrive on this land, for those of us, located in the so-called Americas through different means. Maybe you're native yourself and have been here all along. Maybe like me, your ancestors were forced here, displaced indigenous Africans. Maybe you are the descendant of original white settlers. You may have more recent immigrant history, perhaps your first or second generation. Maybe your family fled persecution, war, genocide, poverty, or other unspeakable acts in your homeland. Maybe you or your family moved here just because you wanted to. No matter how you arrived, we must all recognize in our work always that what we do is directly tied to indigenous sovereignty and liberation. As the saying goes, none of us is free until we're all free. This is the most especially true when we're on someone else's land. As we connect what we do here today to the fight for the needs of our native, trans siblings and two-spirit siblings and indigenous communities the world over, let us remember environmental justice, land back, the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and two-spirit people, visibility in media and many other urgent issues facing native, first nations and indigenous people across this colonized country. Take this opportunity to make a mental note of the importance of these issues, how Native identity and trans identity or two spirit identities might intersect to create unique challenges. Follow and support the work of Native and First Nations activists, scholars, and culture creators. Uplift their issues and educate yourself and others. Strive to be an accomplice in their right for freedom, their fight for freedom, and one day we might all see it together. Thank you for allowing me to share that
0: yeah that was beautiful thank you for sharing that we honor the elders the human plant and animal ancestors of these lands and celebrate the living descendants of these people may all beings tend to these lands for the goodness of the next seven generations and beyond hello welcome to genderfall this week our guest is denari grace pronouns she, they, and they are chatting with us about intersectional social justice on a day like today on MLK Day in the States. Whoo, here we go. Welcome to Jennifer, Denary. How are Thank you today? You. Thank <laughs> you.
2: I'm hanging in there.
0: All right. I did
2: not rest today.
0: <laughs> oh.
2: I did not rest. I'm behind on work. So I'm I did not... work today.
0: Oh, wow. But I'm, but I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being here. It's like 5 p.m. on the coast over there, so thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Let's see here. We went over your name and pronouns, but can you share some special interests with us?
2: Sure. I love to cook and bake. I started really in earnest in high school. My mom taught me a couple of things. My grandma taught me how to make cakes from scratch, but a lot of what I've learned has been on my own which has been awesome. I'm not just interested in the making of food, but also like I like reading about the history of making food and particularly when food is so tied to culture and history. I love learning about the foods that connect me to my ancestral land, West Africa, even though my family has been here in the U.S. for generations. I love learning about like what foods native to where you know what I mean so like the foods that I eat like different fruits and veggies and things like that and um, I'm also really into documentaries that's like the nerd side (laughs) different kinds of documentaries but I particularly prefer documentaries that are I guess oriented towards social justice issues whether that's a documentary talking about like what is socialism actually or whether it's talking about a pivotal a pivotal moment in history that has re- reverberated through the decades. I also am really a huge fan of like exposes because I hate capitalism. <laughs> so like exposes that like, are like, look at these like greedy, like capitalists blah, blah, blah. You know, exposing the things that they've done. Those are like really awesome. Uh, I'm trying to lean away from true crime because of how problematic it is, but that's also still an interest. And yeah, and of course, you know, music um, and writing are my loves.
0: All right. Do you sing, play instruments, both, write songs?
2: Yes, I'm a blues singer-songwriter. I do not play the piano well enough to play it in public, LOL, but you know, I use it to write music. I know it well enough to write music. Um, So I wouldn't call myself a musician, but I do sort of know my way around. keys and that's it i'm never gonna try guitar i tried it once and it was terrible um okay all right yeah yeah but yeah i've been a singer songwriter since i was a kid uh, elementary school so
0: what was the first song you ever learned to sing
2: i honestly don't remember (laughs) all right second song (laughs) i really don't i honestly don't it's like and i don't know if this is just a songwriter thing but like i honestly like the first song that i remember singing Mm -hmm. is my own song but like i don't remember the song and wow. then, like obviously, like I was—I mean, not obviously—but like I was singing like, Backstreet Boys and Brandy and stuff. I'm an '80s baby, so like, okay. I came up during that time, so I was singing like that kind of stuff. But in terms of what I remember, like I only really remember singing my own stuff. So okay. <laughs> so, the right. one, yeah. So the only thing that I remember is the second song. Okay. That I wrote when I was like 11. Yeah. Um, and it was about to like
0: college and my future.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> I was a
0: nerd. <laughs> so just very light subject matter. Okay. Wow. All right. That's powerful. Okay. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. What are the things you trace back to your youth that indicated that you might be trans one day?
2: That's funny. I was thinking about this question and I feel like for me, like when I look back, I mean, LOL trauma life, like there's like gaps in my memory about like what I remember about my own experiences growing up. But from what I can remember, there was like, for me, there was really no indication that I was trans, so to speak, like in the sense that obviously the sort of common narrative around trans folks is, and it's true for queer folks as well, which I am also It's like the idea that we always knew and we had to hide who we were or who Mm -hmm. we are as children in order to survive, in order to just get through life. But for me, like there was no like, oh, like, like there's something different about me. Like, Mm -hmm. at least as far as my trans identity goes, like I definitely knew from a young age that I was bi. But when it comes to being trans, like there was no experience of that for me and for me and obviously like i'm not cis but like i think this is true for a lot of cis folks as well and i'm sure this experience will also resonate with some trans folks is like for me it's not about when i did start questioning my gender a few years before i came out publicly in 2018 when i did it was very impactful and it wasn't something that I even necessarily did consciously. And so when I reflect on that sort of awakening and then I reflect back on my childhood, I don't look at it as like, oh, well, obviously I was a CIS person. And then I had this epiphany or whatever, when I got older, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it's a question, it's an issue of like, I was so, so what I'm thinking of, I was so immersed in what was expected of me you know what I mean as yeah. a human being with a certain body type I'm intersex too so there's like that goes into it as well
3: okay. but like
2: I was so immersed in these expect- expectations of what I was supposed to be based on my body that there wasn't even any room to even question internally you know what I mean so it wasn't mm-hmm. like you know what I mean
3: like yeah.
2: I, I was told from jump that I was a girl and I was dressed the way a girl child was expected to dress and my ears were pierced and all these other things and so for me like there was no other existence you know what I mean until I found community and so it wasn't for me it it wasn't like oh well Daenerys was obviously cis as a child it was more so like which is true just of like with colonialism And sexism and everything combined Mm -hmm. is true for so many people that those walls are so closed off to us. That was all I knew. So I didn't even have the space to even question if that was right for me. You know what I mean? And so when I think about myself in the past, I just think of myself as I was a child. I don't really think of myself as like, oh, I was like a trans child or a non-binary child who was struggling to get free because I don't have that experience. I don't have that experience of any type of body or social dysphoria that so many trans folks do experience in their youth. But I also was never given the opportunity to think of anything outside of that world. At least when I was growing up, I knew... I didn't hear the word bisexual until I got to high school. But I at least knew there was such a thing as gay people Mm -hmm. as a kid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like trans was like so far away because of the way society is set up that like Mm -hmm. it was just like incomprehensible to even think that what i'm being told might not be who i actually am and so that's why i'm so eternally grateful to trans community because it's been connecting with us and and learning about history learning about the various struggles that really i'm to go hey wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> hold Here up that.
0: wait a minute what's going on i feel that i feel a lot of what <laughs> you're saying yeah definitely like i think for the first time i heard transgender must have been maybe 2006 when i saw the documentary i think it's mr angel that has a uh, stars buck angel mm-hmm. and i remember watching it and being like maybe a half hour into it and being like you can do that and then all of a sudden <laughs> i was like I think it was a couple of days later or something. I was working for a cab company and I was crossing the street to go because the cab company was a block away and I was crossing the street and I remember crossing the intersection and I just kind of very like flippantly was like, I'm going to change my gender when I'm 50 and I turned 50 and that's exactly what I did. And so, so I understand like, it's just like, you don't hear about things and you don't have language. And that means you don't have the experience that maybe other people have had and it doesn't make either experience less legit. It just means that your path is this way and someone else's path is this way and my path is this way. But ultimately, it all leads us back to community and being able to hold space where we are as we are and know that where we are and as we are can evolve over time, which is a perfect question to come up next, which was when you talked a little bit about it, but how has your relationship with gender to gender evolved over time?
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, like I said before, like I definitely, because that was all I knew. I mean, I I learned of the word cis in undergrad at Rutgers in, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I was a queer student leader there. And that's when I started, you know, the baby steps of learning about trans issues. And of course, at the time, I was still kind of feeling my way, but by the time I got to grad school, like definitely firmly understanding myself as a cis woman. And of course, with all the other identities on top of that. And there was, there was never any questioning of my own internal feelings of my identity, but definitely part of what led me to come to non-binary and trans identity was the experience of even though I perceived myself as a cis woman, being fat, being Black, being darker skinned, Mm -hmm. I wasn't always perceived as such by other people, regardless of how I identified. And it's so funny, like I've had conversations with people and they talk about how fatness is feminized, but it's also masculinized and it really depends on how people perceive you you know what Mm -hmm. I mean if I had been perceived as a quote-unquote cis man and had a fat body people might use it to emasculate or attach feminine traits to me Mm -hmm. because I dress feminine and am usually but not always perceived as a cis woman people use it to masculinize me and so I'm not always perceived as a cis woman back when I was identifying as such Mm -hmm. and it was always such like a weird experience. And of course, this is something that like cis Black women have been dealing with for years and decades and centuries, having their womanhood snatched from them, invalidated and visibilized. And so just the layers of my different experiences as a fat person, as a Black person, as a darker skinned person, and how all of those different identities sort of work together, even when I was still identifying as cis, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was something that I was definitely aware of, of that, you know, of that othering of my body and of my identity based on you know, how people perceived me as not being good enough of a woman, so to speak. And I was going somewhere with that. And now I forgot.
0: I hate when that happens. Was it, was, were you going to talk about exogender, which is the next question? Was that where you were going? I wasn't. Okay. I was
2: going to make a point about, so, oh yeah, I think I was going to say something about like because being, because I, I mentioned like being fat, being darker skinned, and being black, and also being intersex. And that's something that, like it's not something where like, because this is another ex- common experience that I don't have. When I was born, my, my genitals from the outside, without doing too much investigating, looked quote unquote normal. And so the doctors never said anything to my mom. But as I got older, I would have doctors commenting on the, the strangeness. And that's not the word they use to be clear, but the sort of strangeness of my gender, the, the sort of like abnormality or whatever. And between that and having PCOS, I began to also understand myself as intersex. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I have like the chin hairs and all of that stuff, and the mm-hmm. higher, quote unquote, higher than normal versus women, testosterone, all those sort of things.
0: Yes, I have PCOS too.
2: Yeah. And, and I think that's also something, even though that's not something that can be easily read. By other people, I think that also plays a part in how I'm perceived. And so to segue into the next question. <laughs> and <laughs> um, here it is.
0: Would you how would you tell us? No. Yes. Would you tell us the story behind the term exogender?
2: Yeah. And so that's basically
0: and you how, coined this. this how,
2: word. Yes. How okay. it came about. So that's and that's okay. the other thing about so exogender. And this is the thing with so this is the thing with creating community with history and all these other subjects. So Mm -hmm. I coined this term not long after I came out as Mm non-binary in March, 2018. And, or at least I thought so. And then talking to community, I learned that this was, and it was meant to be a term that was only for use by Black folks, particularly, and especially Black folks who are darker skinned and fat because of the layers that we were just talking about of how much of my experience of gender and my gender journey has been influenced by my experiences of gender as a fat person, as a darker skinned person, as Mm -hmm. a black person, right? Like I can't divorce my gender experience when I was, whether I was identifying as a cis woman or realizing that I'm non-binary from all of those other identities. Like I can't separate those things. And I so for did. me, and so for me, exogender was meant to be an acknowledgement of that experience. Which is why it was meant to be an exclusive term similar to, to to spirit for Native First Nations and Indigenous folks here in the Americas. But you know, like I said, in interacting with community in the, in the coming in the later years after coming up with the term, I learned that it was already a term <laughs> applying to different things. And so when I coined it, it was meant to essentially be a subtype of agender because I specifically identify as agender. And so it was meant to be basically when, as a black person, when you basically experience, you might experience some kind of gender on the outside. You might identify with womanhood or manhood or some other gender or whatever, but like on the inside, so to speak, at your core, you're agender. Right, and so that's like the exo, like outside your gender is outside, but inside your age gender. And it's definitely a term that has resonated with people. But I've actually been on a search for a new term, precisely because of subsequently learning that was a word that was already in use, and because it's. And besides the fact that it already has a history, I also didn't want to use a word that already has a history for an experience and a term that for me is inextricably tied to Blackness. You know what I mean? So I didn't want it to be a term that other folks could use. And obviously, like, it's like the N-word. Like, we say don't use it, but like, people go, some people don't use it anyway.
3: Right. But,
2: um, you know what I mean? But yeah. like, basic premise of it is that folks who are not, what's the word, Black folks who are descendants of Africa, specifically, because I know that's even the term Black is not a term that is used only by folks who are descendants of, of Africa. Uh, that it's this term that's meant to be for that and so I've kind of been on a journey trying to figure out and this is a thing that happens a lot too like for me like you find that like people don't do their and I did read not that I didn't research but like so much of our history gets lost and so much of it and I'm talking about like marginalized communities in general much of our our human our history gets lost gets erased gets forgotten and it's just hard to find and And that, and then when, so when it comes to creating these things, like even with Fat Acceptance Month, I, you know, I know we're going to get to that later, but, you know, I founded it in 2019. And then in a couple of years ago, someone from NAFA reached out to me and was like, oh, we were doing research and we decided to create our own, basically like a month for fat folk. Even though I had already been doing that shit for like three years, you know what I mean? And, uh. And so they did theirs in May. I and mean, I think it's called Fat Liberation Month or something like that. And this is kind of like one of those things like reinventing the wheel where just this happens a lot in community.
0: They're rebuilding your wheel.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and okay. so, just so we're um, clear. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: And so I, that was something that I've been trying to move away from exogender. The concept obviously is still very real for me, um, but trying to find another word that's not already, that's not already taken. So that's like the history of that. But it really, it just came to me. I was standing in my kitchen and uh, like,
0: boom. <laughs> you <know? laughs> mm. When you uh, have moments like that, where you're standing in your kitchen, do you feel like that's your ancestors talking to you?
2: I did, I did, and obviously, like it wasn't the right word, but I think that the concept is what's more important. That's what it um, sounds like, like. I said it's definitely a term that has resonated with people, black folks, where they've been like, "Oh, like this is such a great word. Like this is what I needed." So, like, I know deep down that's like the concept is something that folks need, and so it's just like trying to figure out a word that that feels right and that isn't already taken. <laughs>
0: really taken, I mean that's the Battle of the words right there, yeah,
3: right,
0: okay, thank you for sharing all of that too. I'm really tempted because I feel like people who are not like us don't understand quite as well as we do the difference between being a dark skinned black person versus someone who's light skinned and the treatment that each group gets. Are you willing to talk about that and unpack that to kind of deepen the conversation we're already having around that? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Okay, thank you. So the question is, when you talk about being darker skin and then you say being fat, and then talking about your gender around that and trying to choose the right word that will resonate with people that go beyond just being black, that everyone else can use this word. Can you talk a little bit about your experience being darker skin and being with fat and then having PCOS and then? being intersex and how all of this has con- kind of come together can you just deepen that conversation a little bit for us
2: yeah thank you so this is like about binaries i yeah, remember seeing a tweet from i don't know if you're familiar with them Deshaun l harrison who is also a, a d-a apostrophe a-u-n-l harrison who is also a black fat non-binary trans movement leader and author and writer super awesome also very expert in music as like a hobby sort of thing wow Um, they're really great and i remember seeing this tweet from them i don't know if it was last year or the year before but it was basically there was like a twitter conversation happening around colorism and i don't don't quote me because i don't remember like exactly word for word what they said but they were basically talking about when it comes to colorism that it's basically like you're either affected by it or you're not you know what I mean you either experience the negative effects of colorism or you have the privilege of being lighter skinned and right and so that's why I mentioned like the binary and Mm -hmm. it was something that like really intrigued me because as a black person and I'm sure that other folks of color also experience dealing with colorism because it's not just a black thing but as obviously I can't speak to those experiences but as a black person specifically I grew up where there was this like sort of acknowledgement of the various shades that we come in and so there was this it was basically this acknowledgement of the vast spectrum of melanin and colors mm-hmm. that we can come in that always gets flattened when talking to white people whereas mm-hmm. you know what i mean you either like yeah. look like tracy ellis ross or yeah, in their minds or you're either tracy ellis ross
0: you or know, Diana Ross. Oh,
2: right. Or Rashida Jones or somebody. Or right. Or uh, Wolfie Goldberg. Right. You know? And, as and those are the who, pillars. Right. And so as someone who has always occupied more of like the middle space, you know what I mean? Between that, it was always like very, I don't want to say frustrating, but I do like remember this moment where like this, where I went to Pride in New York City. And uh, I ended up bumping into someone that I went to undergrad with, this white person. And he was like, something about like, because, <laughs> like when the summer comes and they're like always talking about like, oh, well, I'm going to get dark like you or whatever. Like, and so he made like some kind of comment about like me being like dark skinned and me like recognizing the absolute ridiculous spectrum of colors that we come in. I was like. What? what are you talking about what do
0: you mean oh. when you say dark skin <laughs> right
2: and like i was just like very confused like i'm brown Who are you talking about and so and obviously like that was like a good 15 or so years ago right but like in that time like i've learned so much and so seeing that tweet from Deshawn really kind of sort of hit like this sort of epiphany for me where it was like oh and like and I'd had these conversations before because growing up I was the darkest of my cousins and all of that. And within families that experience specifically within black families and families of color, that experience. But not to say that I was like abused or anything, but there's definitely a a layer, you know what I mean, to to your experience as a child when you aren't light and when my mom is light, she's light skinned, she tries to call herself brown. <laughs> But, um, (laughs) and, and um, I love her, but like I grew up in a single parent home with her
0: Yeah,
2: and it was like, and I was very aware of that, of being a darker child, especially as a kid. I grew up in Queens originally and we played outside a lot. So, and a lot of times I was even darker than I am now as a kid. Like I look at like school pictures and like, you know what I mean? But like, I've never, like, I've never been able to pass a paper bag test. You know what I mean? So, so like, and so for me, that's like, that's kind of like the, that binary, you know what I mean, that Deshawn was speaking to. Obviously, like I consider myself like the small fat of darker skinned people. I'm experiencing the least amount of violence related to colorism compared to folks a lot darker than I am.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But
2: definitely the experiences are still there because it is that experience of like, look, like you're either experiencing the negative effects of colorism or you're not you're either experiencing the effects of white privilege or you're not right like and we can talk about nuances and things like that but like i mean at the end of the day this is the society we're living in this is the the, the structures that we were unfortunately born into and, mm. and that's the reality and so i definitely feel it but i also like i said i'm not a small fat just so we're clear but like I'm the when it comes to colorism like I'm the equivalent of a small fat as far as I'm concerned and and so I definitely don't bear the brunt you know what I mean I do because um, I'm a
0: lighter skinned person and I don't bear the brunt of like my darker family members like my not my personal family members but like within my chosen family I have people that are lighter than I am I'm light and then I have people that are slightly darker a little bit darker very dark and it's like I wasn't raised to feel one way or another about the complexion of someone's skin. It was like, well, do you get along with them? And it was like, yeah, I do. And then you go play and that's it. And I grew up in diverse neighborhoods. So it was a bit of a shock moving to Minnesota where everybody was predominantly white, but that was also 30 years ago. And now it's so integrated and segregated at the same time. So there's all of these like little nuances and components and stuff like that. So is there anything else that you'd like to say about that before we switch to uh, topics?
2: I don't think so. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where like, because I am like on the lighter end of darker skin, it's one of those things where like, I don't want to take up too much space. I definitely talk about my experiences and the pain of that, but you know, also not be like, Hey, let's center me (laughs) and people who look like me. When, like I said, I don't bear, even though I experience colorism, I don't bear the brunt of the real systemic consequence Mm -hmm. of being of the darkest. Um, And so I I definitely want to acknowledge that like my experiences are real and valid, but they are not what should be centered in this conversation.
0: Right. I agree with that as for myself as, as well too. All right. I want to check in with you about a possible bio break. I'm good. You're good. Okay. Well, let me switch topics. And the topic we're going to talk about now is fat positive artivism. And since you are an artivist, which I love that word, tell <laughs> us about the art that you create.
2: Yeah, sure. Like I mentioned, I'm a blues, I'm a blues singer songwriter. I use the term blues both for literal, literal reasons, but also for political reasons. Uh, I don't just, I don't only sing blues. A lot of what I sing is not blues, but it's a musical form that means a lot to me i discovered it in high school i was in band i was in i was a nerd i was in band i was in choir in high school okay and and through that kind of music i went to high school here on long island in hempstead and we had a a black choir director from ohio Okay. and she went to an hbcu uh, and she would teach us spirituals which are also called negro spirituals sometimes
0: I just want to interrupt you for a second. You said oh. HBU. Can you, or is it HBU? Yes, Historic Black College. Can you talk a little bit about that because our viewers might not know that acronym? Oh, yeah.
2: Sorry. Thank um, you. No, yeah, no. Thanks for calling that out. Yeah, mm-hmm. HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. The history of this. Oh, I stopped myself from swearing. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> PG
0: <PG-13>, thirteen, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> way Um, to go this crappy country (laughs) (laughs) patootie patootie yes i got
2: you i got you left our people to create our own spaces and that included higher education and so these are spaces that are still predominantly black spaces of spheres of higher education she specifically went to i think she went to central state which is also in ohio
0: yeah i'm from Um, ohio
2: Yeah, yeah. Dayton
0: and I I went to college, uh, art college in Columbus, College of Art and Design. So yeah, very familiar. 18 years there. 19. Nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where she went. And and she brought with her, of course, that knowledge, studying music herself, learning Moses Hogan and all these really great arrangers and composers, Black arrangers and composers, Mm -hmm. spirituals. And it's through spirituals that I really, it's partly through spirituals that I really began to become familiar with the blues. And so I've loved it pretty much for half my life. I'll be thirty second in March.
0: Okay, you're really Oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and I really love it, but it has such a long history. It's the foundation for... So much of American popular music, from rock and roll to R&B, you know what I mean, to jazz, to soul, to funk, to rock. There's just so many different genres that we wouldn't have in gospel, of course, so many different genres that we wouldn't have without the blues. And it's a very, 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 as a lot of them are, a very, very Black genre of music, and specifically a very African American genre of music, and so as someone, I was born and raised in New York, but my family on both sides are from the South, and specifically North Carolina, uh-huh. and and so for so many reasons on so many levels, blues really holds a special place in my heart. Especially as obviously as the decades have gone on, blues has become sort of a niche genre of music. It's no longer popular in terms of the sense of a lot of people listening to it in the mainstream. So part of my claim to that, to that genre as a singer is to be a part of the, of the vanguard of younger folks that keep it alive. And obviously I'm not the only one. Shamikia Copeland and Kristone Kingfish, they're definitely young and younger Black folks who are doing blues as musicians, as singers, as songwriters. But I really feel like the importance of keeping this particular musical musical legacy alive is so important. But I do also sing pop, not like bubblegum pop, like singer songwriter kind of stuff. Some R influences, some jazz influences. I listen to all different kinds of music. I mean, I'm not like I'm not out here singing metal,
3: but like, okay.
2: but uh, there's so many different musical influences for sure. Um, for me and then I also am a poet which I've also been doing since elementary school I'm a quote unquote aspiring screenwriter aspiring because there was this quote from forget her name she said like basically like not to say you're aspiring just say you're a screenwriter you know what I mean I've kind of taken that to heart and so I I try not to call myself aspiring but I have do you want to say that
0: sentence again do you want to say that sentence again without aspiring you just want to say what you (laughs) are yeah
2: I'm also a screenwriter
0: all right (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's what i like to hear i'm a filmmaker too so i want to hear you tell the truth All right. <laughs> thank, you. Have, thank you i do have a quick question since we're on the topic about music it came in yeah. from gender meownster who's recovering from surgery which is why i'm the only host here today they would like to know if you have any blues albums that we could buy and where can we buy them
2: I do. I have been singing for most of my life, but I have rarely gotten an opportunity to actually record. It costs money to be an artist and I've really only started pursuing, this is like a whole story, but I really only started pursuing music professionally in earnest since 2017 which is the same year that I started my Patreon. When I graduated high school, I planned, majored in English at Rutgers because when I graduated high school, I planned to get my master's and become a high school English teacher. I did high school, the high school plays, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Like I said, I was in band. I was in choir. I wrote a play when I was in fifth grade. been doing music and poetry since I was in elementary school. But I sort of basically went or attempted to go, but ancestors and the universe had other plans. I right. attempted As a more practical route. And so I was like, okay, like I love teaching and like, I love like learning. So mm-hmm. and I'm good at writing and there was, oh, will I be a history teacher? Will I be an English teacher? And I ended mm-hmm. up going with English. And like I said, folks had other plans. for The way life went with my disabilities and all these other things. I basically got pushed into, the same way that I got pushed into becoming a queer student leader at Rutgers, I got Mm -hmm. pushed into, by necessity, tapping, really tapping into my writing and my singing, screenwriting, and all these different forms of creativity.
0: Do you have have a, do you have a, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I have another question too. Do you have a SoundCloud that we can follow or Musician Social? I don't
2: have a SoundCloud. Okay. Uh, Like I said, I... So I have a Patreon. You can find my music on, some of my music on my Patreon. Um,
0: I think uh, it might I be listed down there. here, actually, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it should be there. Yeah, um, it's right, right here. Be-
0: oh, no, that's ours. Oh. <laughs> let me. Can you drop it in chat and then I can, someone can oh, yeah, pick yeah. it up and make sure it gets in here? Yeah, be- I
2: actually, uh, I posted a new song the last day of the year a couple of weeks ago on December
0: 31st. Okay, actually, um, we've got your handle for Patreon. I was just oh, have, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Thank you, or Arjuice, whoever did that. Yeah,
2: right now, that's the only place. I mean, unless you see me live at a show, mm. um, I've done a few shows. That's the only place that my music lives right now. Okay. One of the things that I learned, not only from that choir director, Miss Rachel Blackburn from mm. Ohio, but that I also learned from my late bishop back when I was still going to church. Okay. I, I, haven't been, I haven't been there, <laughs> but, but still, those influences are there, was really about excellence. And so while I did share a really rough, very extremely unbelievably rough demo, I made a song that I finished, I actually finished it in October, but I didn't get a chance to record it on my phone until last month. But my preference is to post things that are a little more polished. And so one of my goals for this year is to really, that's what I'm thinking of, is to really grow and connect and make connections with other folks, other singer-songwriter musicians in the area. Because mm-hmm. I don't play, at least really not in any professional capacity, I rely on, when I do live shows and things like that on me paying musicians. Which again, this stuff costs money,
3: um, right? Right. You know, which, in order
2: to play for me, and like I haven't really had
0: the resources to do that, so that's can part you plug of. Like your Patreon? I have it right here. Can I plug your Patreon? Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, no,
2: yeah. No okay.
0: Problem. All right, so it's patreon.com forward slash writers delight. I love that. It sounds like rappers delight, but it's writers delight. <laughs> and so it's it's writers and then D-E-L-I-T-E. Right, yeah. Right, and we're going to put that on the screen. If it's not on the screen now, we're going to put it on the screen a little bit later in the interview. So keep your eyes Mm -hmm. out for it. Let me see, I'm going to move to the next question. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing all that. But this is, I really appreciate it. This is what is coming up next, which is tell us about Fat Acceptance Month. Why did you create this event? And when did you create it?
2: Yeah. So this year, so it happens every January. Just now, <laughs> this year um, is actually the fifth year that I've done. I started in nineteen, January of that year, and really, it came. It just came about. Like I said, I tried to do my research, make sure I wasn't reinventing the wheel. Really, because I wanted to create a space for fat folks, primarily, to really come together and as in community, to learn together, to grow together, to share together to create spaces where we could find each other and of course i started it i or i designated it for january because this is sort of the like new year new me month all right i heard that we're like constantly bombarded even more than usual with messages about the inadequacy of our bodies as fat folks um, and you know how important it is for us to shrink ourselves for our health and and so i really wanted a space to to combat that messaging. In addition to a space, like I said, to teach each other for political education, I created it, of course, before COVID. And so the idea was to eventually move it to both virtual and in-person events. I haven't had a chance to do that yet. I'm trying to be as COVID safe as possible. So the last few years, everything has been online only. It's really consisted of Twitter chats. The first year I hosted a workshop that folks attended. And like I said, it's really just about starting conversations, creating space that's an alternative to the other messaging that we get during this time of year. And hope, of course, of bringing more folks into the fold, encouraging folks that are already in the fold, and as one of the spaces that we can use to move closer and closer Eventually toward liberation. Right. You Can know, you share?
0: I, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I want to know if you could share a little bit about the workshops that you do. That's really intriguing that you offered these. And what were these workshops?
2: Yeah. So the workshop I did in 2019, I believe it was a, basically a general, like 101 sort of thing. I know it has a title, but it's been a while because I've also done it at conferences on okay. um, that workshop. And so I know it has a title, but I'm blanking. Okay. That's I, think fine. Called, I think it's called The Elephant in the Room. Oh, (laughs) or something like that. But yeah, like I said, it's like more like a 101 sort of a workshop. Yeah. And I do a lot of teaching around, and I know we were talking about fam, but I do a lot of teaching around bi plus community, or some people say NSPEC community, folks, community that's attracted to multiple genders. And that's you know really how I started as a queer student leader. And so that's something that I'm still doing. So I teach about that. I'm actually hoping to jumpstart some songwriting courses this week, not this week, this year. Okay. It's really happening cool. this month. Fam is yeah. Fa- fat okay. acceptance month okay. is but it's happening this long. month. Okay, but yeah, it's fam now. So we did a Twitter chat. Well, not we. It's just me. There's no nonprofit, five hundred one c three. There's no staff or even volunteers or anything. It's literally just me. Okay. doing this work, which like also speaks to like. Like, obviously, like the work needs to be done, and I'm happy to do it, but it's also hard when it's just you and just your little bit of resources, which is like really nothing. Like, I live in the projects, so I'm not like rolling in dough over here. Okay. (laughs) But even just like the mental and and physical capacity is someone who's mentally disabled, mental disabilities, physical disabilities, and this time of year for me and for a lot of people, but myself is particularly hard because my, my depression gets worse with the colder months. And so that makes getting any kind of work done, difficult. Right. Um, so there was one year, I think it was last year. Yeah, I think it was a year ago where I didn't do anything for Fat Acceptance Month. But for me, it's like, it's like Black History Month. Of, you know what I mean? Like if no events or whatever happen in February, it's still Black History Month. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Yeah, uh, it is. It's, uh, right. like, it's still fam, but I didn't actually do anything. <laughs> okay. Dealing with the ramifications of leaving, cutting off contact from an abuser and uh, the sort of like, double impact of already just like normal seasonal depression effects combined with dealing with like the normal things that I have to go through this time of year and then also dealing with the aftermath of escaping that and mm. cyber and things that came That's after so um thank you and so yeah. it was really like really a hard time for me to get any work done but i'm really committed to keeping it in january for the the symbolism and the knowing that it's a space that's really needed it's basically like i created the space because it was what i needed you know what i mean okay. and i know that if i needed it then there's other people that also needed it and i know that because people do when i do have events people come to the chats and it may not be like hundreds of people or even dozens but right. <laughs> you know what i mean But uh, the movement world, for me, like, obviously, like, I want more people to participate because I want more people to benefit from it. For Mm -hmm. me, it's not like, oh, like, no one showed up this time or only one person showed up. So, like, I failed, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, the work and just keep doing the work. And that's really what movement, obviously, like, don't bring yourself out. Do what you can when you can. And whoever shows up and you can't, you know what I mean, you can't beat yourself up about that.
0: No, you can't. You're providing a service and people have an option as to whether they want to be involved or not. Do you have any stories that you'd like to share about a past fat acceptance moms, the fam? Yeah,
2: yeah. I've definitely, I've made, I've connected with more community, which was definitely one of my goals of creating it that I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. connecting with other people. People were really receptive to the, uh, what's it called? The workshop that i did the first year so i'm really hoping to reincorporate that for next year but it would be a different workshop but like just knowing that people the people who do show up appreciate the space that you create
3: you know mm-hmm. what i mean
2: and the care that goes into it but not to say that i'm like perfect or anything like i mean like i've been an activist in one form or another for more than 15 years at this point but That's like right. even then like i'm still learning all the time from people like Deshaun and other folks and who work in different because you know, like some folks I that I follow or I'm connected to are doing like native stuff. And some folks I'm connected to are doing fat stuff and trans stuff and di- disability stuff. So there's just, and a lot of us are doing more than one. And just the people that I learned from over the years, I'm really grateful for that and grateful for the ability to keep growing because that's one of the things that comes from doing this work too. It's like a muscle, you know what I mean? You keep yeah. using it, you keep, you know what I mean? Going at it. Building um, endurance. Yeah, yeah, and that's what, yeah, the endurance. Because it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, liberation. Right. Yeah, there's, as with yeah, life. It's not life something is... that's going to be handed to you on a platter. You have to fight for it.
0: You have to fight for it. That's yeah. right. Well, this is a perfect segue, because the question that I have for you are is, what lessons can trans justice movements learn from fat liberation and vice versa? Now, this is one that I... <laughs>
2: I didn't give myself a chance to think about in advance. Okay. Give me a
0: minute. <laughs> All right. That's fine. That's fine. Thank you for thinking about it.
2: Yeah. I think one thing, and I'm going to answer kind of the vice versa part. Okay. first. <laughs> All right. But I think one thing that and it's a common, I guess, trip up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. One thing that, you know, a lot of, and this was true of me as well, the way that I came into a fat liberation work is that a lot of people who first come into fat liberation movement work, <coughs> they, when they first start learning, they often have a tendency to sort of basically cater to the status quo in doing that work. <coughs>
0: Would you say it's status quo? Can yeah. you unpack
2: I'll share that an a example? Bit?
0: Thank you. you. Know. Can yeah, you unpack yeah, no, the status quo? Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that.
2: Where, so like a common refrain when people talk about, like, oh, fat people have to lose weight for their health, things like that. Or if they see like a fat person who's a model or whatever, and they're like, oh, why are you promoting obesity? It's so unhealthy. And a lot of newbies basically will come into the space like, oh, well, not all fat people are unhealthy or like, like you can't tell like someone's health or whatever based on their size, which is true, but it really leans, it still leans into the, both Bad antagonistic and ableist and really also anti-black ideas about like the importance of health which i kind of one of the questions that i submitted to y'all kind of speaks to that like this questioning of, of the concept of health itself which is right. something that deshaun harrison also talked about and wrote about in their book and so what's the name know, of this book it's called belly of the beast that's the title and then the subtitle is anti It's called i know it's something i'm, I'm blanking Something, something like anti-fatness as anti-blackness. The politics, yes, the politics of anti-fatness, anti-blackness, Sean L. Harrison. But you know, the idea of like, oh, we can be healthy. Basically, like that's not the point. You know what I mean? And that's not the point in terms of our liberation. That's not the point in terms of our dignity. Fat, disabled people exist. Our lives still matter. You know what I mean? And so a lot of Right. And so in my and obviously, like not every trans person or even every trans movement worker adheres to this. But there's a lot more, at least in my experience, loudness about not catering to the status quo, not catering to what the bigots are saying, not falling in line, like basically not like falling for their tricks. You know what I mean? And I think that that's something that we could all, as fat activists, learn from. But I think especially folks who are new to fat liberation, who are new to questioning a lot of these these things that we've been taught pretty much from birth, could really heed to. That it's not about whether someone's healthy or not. It's about their humanity. You know what I mean? It's about their right to exist. You know what I mean? As they see fit. And um, I think that, I think when we, because the issue when you, when, when you pivot to, oh, not all fat people are this, not all fat people are that. Oh, you can be fat and this and that is what about those of us who aren't those things? And we become expendable, whether that's your intention or not. And so it's really important for a lot of reasons. That being Mm -hmm. one of them, that we aren't throwing our community under the bus for a punchline, whether it's a cool punchline or because it's true. Like there are some fat folks who are healthy and blah, blah, blah. Good for them. Healthy, Mm -hmm. right? But like, that's not the point. That's
3: not the point. And,
2: you know, and that's something that even I used to talk about, like, gotcha, using it as a gotcha moment, but Mm -hmm. it's not helpful in the grand scheme of things. And then the other way around, in terms of like trans folks learning from fat folks, I definitely think, I mean, this is a conversation that I think both communities could have with each other. So it's not just something that trans folks can learn from fat folks about, but also vice versa is definitely just listening to each other in terms of, you know, because, and this is true for even disability activists too, right? Like mm-hmm. fat folks and trans folks, disabled folks, when I'm all of those things. But we could all be having conversations about how we talk about our bodies. Yeah. And I think that all of those conversations within each of those separate communities are important. But I also think that cross-movement conversations are important, especially since there are people like me who are all three of those things. And it's really, I think it's really powerful to have different conversations about what it means to be in a body. And so I think... Because I mean, obviously, like I mentioned Deshaun before, who's also trans, but a lot of the face of the trans movement is thin folks. And and so, and for me, that's like a big reason why, you know, having that cross conversation about what it means to live in a body, I think is something that even just for a different perspective. So obviously, I mean, with the hope, of course, that trans folks who aren't fat will, <laughs> and even those who are, will fight for fat liberation. Yeah. But, you know, even just beyond that, to just really have different conversations about what that means what's hard about it what's euphoric about it what the systemic obstacles are based on the kind of body you have that trans folks could learn a lot from fat folks about that like i said and vice versa as i said but that's definitely something that comes to mind because it's something that's such a pertinent conversation for both of those groups but even like i said also disabled folks as well
0: Okay. What are your thoughts about doctors with BMI limits and hospitals without BMI limits? B. it's recent surgery has some BMI stuff and they know that they have a lot of white and middle-class privilege to access that. Can you speak on that?
2: Yeah, I just missed the second part of your question. You said something about hospitals.
0: Gender, Gender Master had surgery. And so they had some BMI stuff around their surgery. And they also know that as a white person, they have middle class, white and middle class privilege to access certain aspects of healthcare that maybe you and I don't have. And wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean...
2: Oh, I stopped myself from swearing again.
0: Woo! <laughs> All right. This is two for two or two for, oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> Team Jersey. So BMI is crap. It's like the way they um,
0: measure like animals, like in the farm. Is
2: um, that where from? Well, I know that it was it something that, that measured, like it was basically like a lot of, like a lot of quote no, science and I'm also like partially using air quotes, was something that was studied in cis white men. And and it wasn't even like a medical, it wasn't medical scientific exploration. They made it to apply to everyone, whether they're a cis white dude or not. And so, and it's so funny because I've talked to doctors who will acknowledge you know, that it's, I don't even like the word outdated because it was never dated in the first place. Like it was terrible. Junk science from jump, but I was going to say, but the current healthcare system that we live in is, it can't be divorced from the fat antagonism of the society. And so the obstacles that fat folks experience, the barriers that we experience to healthcare, that's one of them, obviously. And it's something that, you know, and this is part of why it's so important to have those cross movement conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is like a very tangible way. That you know that what it means to live in a body affects both trans folks and fat folks. When you're fat and trans, this is a wall that a lot of trans folks who are seeking medical transition have to bump up against.
0: And do you think that's even more affected because of the color of your skin? Do you think that plays a role into it as well? I think that's what gender is asking. Oh, uh, yeah um,
2: yeah i mean as i said the book that that i mentioned talks about of the the politics beast. Of, yeah of the politics of anti-fatness and as anti-blackness and so gotcha. you really can't when you and you know I, I definitely highly recommend the book following them on socials you can't really divorce especially when you look at the history of you know the valuation because really so much of oppression is about the valuation of bodies whose bodies are valued and whose bodies aren't trans bodies are not valued. Fat bodies are not valued. Disabled bodies are not valued. Black bodies are not valued. Except for in the ways that they can contribute labor and have their labor extracted from and exploited. But outside of that, we have no dignity. We have no worth. And so you definitely, these conversations about trans experience, trans needs to survive and fatness and anti-Blackness, you really can't, you can't divorce all of these different conversations because
0: they're deeply interwoven.
2: Yeah, exactly. They are so inextricably linked. You can't really, I mean, one of the examples that comes up a lot is, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with her, like Sarah Sarah Bartman when like that depiction of her body and like, it's like abnormal largeness, so to speak, and a Black, a Black woman and looked at because you know a lot of the history of like circuses and and other spaces like that and human zoos right like there's this spectacle of the other body other with a capital o the other body as spectacle as an aberration as something to be gawked at and poked and prodded and when you live in a society that doesn't value those bodies doesn't value the people that live their lives in those bodies, yeah, you definitely bump into the effects of anti-fatness as anti-Blackness, ableism as anti-Blackness in those spaces. And so if you can even access that care in terms of like health insurance and all that other crap, that is also (laughs) detrimental to a society not having universal health care. Even if you get to that point where like you find a doctor or whatever, you still have to deal with Black folks who aren't even necessarily fat you know what I mean, visibly fat, but who will be perceived as fat compared to their white counterparts. And then, you know what I mean? Then there's the whole, like with BMI specifically, the idea of using that to um, bar someone from medical care. And again, it's like, not that it should matter if the person is fat or not, but you know, the point is always that like when you ascribe to and invest in fat antagonism or any form of oppression, really, you're really just like screwing things up, (laughs) screwing things up for yourself. In the long run you know what i mean like it's eventually it's gonna bite you in the butt i guess at some point it's gonna it's gonna bite you in the butt and and so for fat black trans folks trying to access care and keep in mind keep in mind for me i should have brought this up earlier i don't experience body dysphoria i don't know how much of that is due to being intersex Um, but you know i don't have any desires to make any hormonal or medical changes to my body, I do experience social dysphoria. And so in terms of medical care, this isn't my area of expertise. Like everything that I know about it comes from learning from community who, who do need those services okay. or work with communities who do. But trans folks who need to access to these services, <laughs> the barriers are compounded and compounded. Because not only are you dealing with the assumptions about what it means to be in a fat body, what it means to be in a trans body, mm-hmm. it means to be in a black body, you're also dealing with the many assumptions and beliefs that come along with interacting with folks in, in that body. So one of the things that I like to bring up a lot, I did it in the last podcast interview I did, was that like, you'll notice that for marginalized people, oppressed groups, even though Our experiences, you know, like my experience as a Black person isn't going to be one-to-one to to an Asian person. An immigrant's experience isn't going to be one-to-one to a trans person's experience. But because of the way oppression works in general, there are certain parallels and certain similarities. And one of the things that comes up a lot for marginalized people is this idea of being perceived as liars. So whether you're a fat person or a trans person or a poor person or an immigrant, or Black, or whatever, you're automatically saying, oh, you're lying about, you know, so a fat person is lying about the amount of exercise they do, or they're lying about loving their body. A trans person is, of course, automatically lying about their gender,
3: because uh, you yeah. can't
2: possibly be that. Poor person is lying on their welfare forms, or they're, like, lying about needing help crowdfunding. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The way that oppressed people, marginalized people as liars comes up is also something that we have to deal with in a medical setting so again for a fat trans person trying to fat black trans person specifically trying to access care you know what I mean that's another one of these barriers where these gatekeepers medical professionals are assessing us based on their perceptions I mean I was ranting the other day about like I don't know if you like have those those patient portals where you can go in like sign in and see like test results and all that sort of stuff and nowadays they allow you to see whatever the doctor's notes are. Yeah. And like you go in there and they're like, yes. And I asked the patient about blah, blah, blah And I'm
3: like, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, so
2: like That's the power that they hold. They can say that you did this. They can say that you did that. They can mm-hmm. proceed in a certain way and mm-hmm. pass that on to their colleagues. And mm-hmm. that affects the kind of care that you get.
3: You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Uh, it
2: can affect your access to things, even. I mean, and it's not, and that's not even the first time that I've experienced that. Like, it's so ridiculous. But uh, let's just be like, oh yes. And then we did this and that, and it's like, no, we didn't. Which is like also the funny part because like we're perceived, you know, as oppressed folks, we're perceived as the liars, you know. But it's actually oppressed people, you know what I mean, um, that are usually doing the lying, whether they're erasing or distorting history whether Mm -hmm. they're lying on you as the oppressed person or whatever, like it's so often that they're actually the one, they tell on themselves. We saw that, we see that with Trump all the time. He tells on himself. And so there's just, so there are a lot of barriers and it's definitely good to not only be mindful as a gender master. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Meowster.
0: <laughs> yes, you are.
2: Yes, thank you. As they are, to be mindful of it. But of course, also to use whatever power that you have to fight for those who don't have that, those yeah. privileges.
0: Denary, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us and for your service in our community. I really appreciate that. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Yeah, I do really. have, yeah, I do have some more questions. So we're going to start with this one, which I've actually been thinking about a lot too. I'm doing an event and I've really been focusing on accessibility. What does accessibility mean to you?
3: Yeah,
2: it's so vast. Disability is probably the most diverse of all oppressed identities in terms of all the different ways. Like there's different ways of being Black. You can be Jamaican, you can be Haitian, you can be Nigerian, you can be African American. There's so many different ways of being fat. You can be a small fat, you can be an infinity fat. You know what I mean? Like there's so many different ways of being so many different identities, the same with trans and everything else, but disability is probably the most diverse. I mean, there's literally thousands and thousands upon disabilities that a person can have. Um, And so when it comes to accessibility, of course, there are lots of different overlaps like ramps and elevators, they help people with multiple different kinds of disabilities. You know what I mean? But even with that truth, there's still just so many different ways of bringing accessibility into spaces. So for me, because it's such a vast issue, such a vast topic, for me, when I think of accessibility and what it means to me, it's really just about openness, opening the world up to more people. And the more accessible a space is, whether it's a virtual space or in-person accessible it is, the more open it is to more people. Right. If You just have, you know what I mean? Like if you're in a space that has live captions, but no ASL interpreters, you know what I mean, Yeah. then it's less open
3: Mm -hmm. to people.
2: And so for me, it's about being as open as possible and always striving for perfection, even if you don't meet it. Like that, you know that saying, like, shoot for, what is it? Like, shoot for the moon, and even if you don't reach it, like, you can still hit one of the stars or something like that. I think it's like shooting with
0: stars, but you can hit the moon and you're still there. Something like, yeah, something like what you said, something like what I'm saying, something like that. Just moon, stars, go for it. Yeah. And and know that you can't make it perfect, but you can strive for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you hit perfection, great, but like, yeah. but you know, especially when you factor in, you know, conflicting access needs where one person, one disabled person might need this access need, this Mm -hmm. accessibility feature. Man. But person B, who's also disabled, that accessibility feature actually makes things harder for them to ac- to access things. Like a great example is like a lot of people, and this isn't a disability that's talked about a lot, but, and I don't have it just to be clear, but a lot of people with multiple chemical sensitivities, of course, they can't be around even natural smells like tea, like essential oils and things like that are really harmful to them. But, but then like you have... A different disabled person who comes into a space or wants to be in a space who has to use certain creams or ointments or whatever, you know what I mean, for their skin condition, those medications have ingredients in them that don't jive with what the person with yes has or deals with, you know what I mean? And both of these people want to be in a space, you know what I mean?
0: No, what do we do? (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm facing that Um, now, yeah.
2: (laughs) And so... Even, But even with the existence of conflicting access needs, which is an issue, there's so many ways for a space to be as accessible as possible. And so it's just really important. It's important to me, as someone who does shows, performs, that's something that that's another reason why I haven't done a show in, in five years of my own. The last show that I did at all was in December uh, 2010. Wow. Um, oh, can you stop making all that noise? It was in December, uh, not 2010, 2021. i did a friend did a showcase and i was like as the featured artist and invited me and another friend to sort of be not the opening acts but sort of like parallel acts in terms of my own shows so that's just like me as the featured artist this next month will be five years since i've done a show and part of the reason for that is really wanting to be as committed to accessibility as possible like my previous shows i didn't have asl interpreter i didn't have captions or anything like that but as i said before i continue to learn and grow from other people in my communities and and that's part of why having community is so important not just for the camaraderie but also for the correction and and so it's really important to me now that i know better you know what i mean but it's like i don't want to create those spaces that aren't as open as they can possibly be and so I'm like really striving, whether I'm teaching a class, even like the workshop I mentioned that I did the first year of FAM, I didn't have like any cart or like any kind of captions or an interpreter or anything. So that was, so that was five years ago. And so, so it's really important to create those spaces. But of course, capitalism and all these other things don't make it easy no. to access those resources if you aren't an organization you know what i mean like i'm not like i'm not like keeping for people who are like like in a large like top nonprofit that brings in 80 bajillion dollars a year or like a corporation like screw them <laughs> like those people like it's like be better have my money like pay people get those mm-hmm. you know, access to the services make things accessible but for people like me who are just doing things on their own you know what i mean who don't have a lot of resources or don't have any at all can make things really difficult. But, you know, when you're committed, when your politics matter and you want them to align with what you do as much as possible, uh, it's like Jurassic Park, life finds a way. like you're going (laughs) to do what, what you have to do. And again, and that's one of the reasons why community is so important. Because when you can tap into community and say, hey, I'm trying to do this event or that event, who do you know who can volunteer their time or do low cost, whatever, or like payment plans or whatever the case. And mm-hmm. it's not to say that you know, that kind of thing will always work out, but at least try. And so many people, when it comes to accessibility, don't even want to try. And yeah, that's part of the pain of being disabled. That space mm-hmm. isn't accessible to me. When you got like mad stairs. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Yes. I'm yes. And yeah. like things like that. And it's like,
2: come on, man. Like, man. yes. <laughs> um, that frustration
0: is real. That frustration yeah. is real. Um, I ha-
2: oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Ahead.
0: I had another question for you. Since we're talking about community and how meaningful it has been for you, it seems like over the last maybe 10 years. Is that right? Maybe Sorry. To-
2: sorry. I missed what
3: you said.
0: I said you, community means so much to you and I have this oh, yeah. question that I want to ask you which is who are some of your favorite people to learn from and are to be in community with?
2: Yeah so obviously I have already mentioned Deshaun i definitely them and one of the things that I love about that in particular we don't know each other personally I mean we've interacted but we're not like connected Mm -hmm. in community in terms of like personal community but one of the things i love about it is that they're significantly younger than me i think like seven seven or eight years or something like that and i think that you know that like i don't want to say intergenerational but you know in general you know how important it is to have that intergenerational space and how important it is to recognize Mm -hmm. that learning can go in so many different directions and it's not like oh like i'm your elder
3: and right, so therefore,
2: I know everything, and right. you can't teach me nothing because
0: you ain't been here
2: for but a minute. I mean, minute. what are you talking about? You I know. know,
0: right? Like that kind of talk is very devaluing and dismissive, and right. it's like I'm 52, and I learn so much from people older than me and people younger than me. Right, and so it kind of puts me back on this path of humility, so that I understand. Right that one of my main purposes of being here is to continue to learn as much as I can and right. transmute that into an evolution that I could be proud right. of. Exactly.
2: Know? Exactly. Yeah. And so definitely them. Okay. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't sure if you wanted to keep this to transform. Can you think of one other person?
0: Or? Oh no. Yeah. It could be anybody that you feel oh, comfortable oh, oh, with okay. that you want to learn from, but who's one other person that you can talk about? I was trying to think one other person.
2: That I've learned a lot from, I would say, and I want to name, I want to say her pronouns or her, Regan Chastain, who is also, who's white and one of the first you know, people that I learned of and started learning from on my journey to fat liberation. And the reason why I wanted to name her is because, and I was thinking about this the other day when she had posted something on Instagram, was that she is one of the fat folks who is very much into sharing about the really nitty gritty science of things when it comes to fat liberation, when it comes to weight and health and things like that. And it's such important work is not my lane. Like I I'm, I call myself a nerd and like, I love nerdy things. But, like astrophysics mm-hmm. is one of my favorite sciences, but like science is like not really my jam in terms of teaching it and like, you know what I mean? And like learning, Mm -hmm. so like people who are doing that specific work within fat liberation are so Mm -hmm. important. And like I said, she's one of the people, one of the first people that that I came across about a decade ago, Mm -hmm. first started discovering these spaces in this community. And so she's someone that I still, you know, because that's not my lane, not something that I study deeply. She, for me, like when it comes to fat liberation, I'm more attuned to like the cultural creation, and history and community building, as opposed to like science and numbers and things like that. Right. And so right. her work is like really important. And of course, she's not the only one doing it, but mm-hmm. definitely someone that I still look to to validate the work that we're doing. There's, there's so much noise out there, the status quo about. Mm-hmm what it means to be in a fat body in terms of health and numbers and, and things like that. And so having people like Regan doing that work is so important. Yeah. I mean, there's other people I could name, but I know we're closing in on. Yeah, 10. we're closing in on and, like, time.
0: Um, I'm going to move to our concluding questions because we are r- running low on time. But There's just, this interview has just been so fascinating and it's been, I've learned a lot. And I agree with a whole lot too, with my experience as well, just having, having been significantly larger than I am now, also having been significantly smaller than I am now, and then transitioning in the middle of that, plus my own disabilities. So this has just been a wonderful, enjoyable interview. And I'm sure our viewers and listeners are going to get so much out of this for themselves and have a sense of validation. So in a sense, this feels like a workshop. For not just fat liberation, but there's trans liberation and there's there's non-binary and intersex liberation. There's a whole lot of liberation that's happening within this interview. And so the first co- concluding question I have for you, is there anything we missed out about social justice activism and intersectionality that you'd like to make sure you say? And we have about five minutes left. Maybe we have, maybe seven. So, and I still have two more. (laughs) So I'm just, you've been great. Your PG is perfect. So we just want (laughs) to (laughs) like.
2: Happy to oblige. Thank you. I think one thing that I, and I guess this is sort of bringing someone else up. She goes, but I don't want to mispronounce her name, but she has a locked account on Twitter, prison culture Mm -hmm. and at, at prison culture on Twitter. And one thing that she says a lot, she's about your age, so she's been doing this work for a long time okay. and prison abolition. And one thing that she says a lot about movement work is that it's basically the idea of hope as a discipline. And so I've had conversations with people in the past, not movement workers, but just in general, where they're like, oh, everything is so terrible, and oh, everything is just going to crap, and blah, 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 blah. Thanks for messing up the energy. (laughs) No, right. It's like, you know, that's kind of like their mentality. What's the point of doing this when, you know, they're going to keep ramping up the laws and blah, blah, blah. Right. And she says, you know, prison culture, she talks about how important it is that we don't continue to do the work just out of nowhere. Like I said earlier, this work is a marathon. It's not a sprint, and so general, it's not even going to be something that most of us see in our lifetimes. Well, obviously, like, wait, I'll
0: go ahead. No, this is a beautiful thing, and I want to say this. Because this is Martin Luther King Day and we are on the cusp of Black History Month. And you talked earlier about spirituals and to educate our white audience members who don't know this, but you know, when our ancestors were working on the plantations, they sang these spirituals asking for freedom, they knew they would never have. It was for our freedom, it was for my freedom, and it was for your freedom. And that's the thing, it's like, you can't really put down the progress if you don't understand that it's a marathon right and that you have to cultivate hope and love and integrity and compassion and empathy in order to continue yeah because it's the other generations like generation alpha is gonna just knock it down they're gonna knock it down because we're doing the work now and we're passing our knowledge down to them just like it was passed down to us and so so yeah so i totally feel you on that i totally feel you on that and thanks for saying that
2: absolutely hope is a discipline
0: hope is um, a discipline prison
2: culture It's something you have to practice. It's something like the muscle, like we talked about earlier. You got to flex it. You got to pump it. That's how you build the endurance. Exactly. Leave it to the wayside. You got to build that endurance in order to keep and stay in the fight.
0: That's right. That's right. That's a lot of self-care. Okay. one other question for you here. Yeah, Um, sure. Can you share an experience with gender euphoria? I know you've talked about that you don't specifically have gender dysphoria, but what is your equivalent of gender euphoria
2: yeah i mentioned that i don't experience body dysphoria specifically right but i can experience gender dysphoria and euphoria socially and so for me i experience gender euphoria i think Not only, but especially when people do as my instructions say and mix up my pronouns. And especially because I'm usually getting shitty all the time. Especially when people use they. But it's especially euphoric when people mix it up because that is like my ideal experience. Whether it's out loud, speaking or in print, online or whatever. Having people do that. It's one of those affirming things that like reminds me. Because like especially when like I don't do this to again to center myself. But as someone who, you know, even though I'm intersex, was assigned female at birth and presents a feminine and identify as a femme, as a non-binary person with that experience, sometimes it can feel like age old, am I trans enough, am I non-binary enough? And so when I experience that euphoria, it's that reminder that my experience is real and valid. And again, it's not like the most pressing of all of the trans community problems. But for my own personal journey, it matters a lot. And and that's part of why it's so important that people actually follow my pronouns. <laughs> yes. <know>? yes, pronouns <laughs> like, matter. You know, like, which is true for so many of us. But yeah. uh, it really feels awesome when someone's like, yeah, and Daenerys said blah, blah, blah. And they were like, and I'm like,
3: <laughs> <laughs> what you say, what you say? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Throwing candle delight. light. Oh my goodness. What would you like to make sure folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary trans issues? Anything that you missed?
2: Just that we've been here. Like, this is pre-colonial crap. <laughs> it's such an important reminder, especially with mm-hmm. all the vitriol that we, and particularly the most marginalized of us, are dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's important to remember that even though they try to pretend that it's new, right? Because they're the real liars. Mm -hmm. They try to pretend it's new. But, you know, we know, especially for Black folks and Indigenous folks and other folks of color, that this goes way, way back hundreds of years and thousands of years, who we are. And that's, I think, in addition to holding on to hope as a discipline, I think holding on to history and our identities and knowing our communities and who we are is also something to hold on to and be disciplined in that. But it's something I've experienced too, like for the discipline of that or knowing who you are, even as a fat person, right. once you come into the knowledge of fat liberation and the truth behind the science and all these other things, once you really know that deep in your bones, that's not something, let's say knowledge is power. That's like what yes. I heard in elementary school. And once you once, like, that's not something
0: they can take away from you. You know that's what right. I mean? That's um, right. Just definitely remember that we've been here and we ain't going nowhere that's right oh my gosh this has been a liberating interview on so many levels please if you're on Twitch, drop some love in the chat so that we can screenshot it and send it through and so i'm gonna wrap up here with a cross promo for denari denari grace i want i've been practicing your name all day and so (laughs) i just messed it up and i'm gonna mix up your pronouns on this okay (laughs) Just going to mess this up a little bit. Here we go. Daenery Grace is a multi hyphenate. Is that correct? Multi hyphenate? Yes. M- multi hyphenate. Yeah. Multi hyphenate New York based social justice warrior and activist. They are a blues singer songwriter, poet, essayist, screenwriter, ghostwriter, activist, and community educator of 15 years. And she is an editor in chief have um, rooted in rights. Daenery's work has focused on creating and growing community through the arts and teaching outside the confines of a traditional classroom. Their Patreon is patreon.com forward slash writers delight and it's D-E-L-I-T-E. Okay, and for socials, you can check out Denari on Instagram. Also Instagram, writers delight at writers delight. And also Twitter, Writer's Delight. Resources for the show notes are Deshaun L. Harrison, another fat, trans, queer, Black, non-binary activist, participant in a Twitter conversation between the two of you that is happening a while ago about colorism, and also the author of Belly of the Beast, a book about anti-fatness and anti-Blackness. And Deshaun's web handle is Deshaun Harrison, A S h-a-u-n harrison.com and it looks like i have sarah sartegi is that correct is that correct Dadari?
2: oh yes that's the other last name that yes no okay by. sorry i'm sorry i was like it's okay
0: you've been hanging <laughs> on the air no it's okay oh <laughs> uh, okay. sarah sartegi bartman oh i'm gonna need help pronouncing this koa koa hockey Kawah, can you
2: help me with that? That, that? Her tribe. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't think I've ever seen that in print.
0: I don't. Know. Okay, I'm trying it's to. It's like one it. of those things where
2: you see the words and then yes. but you've never heard them out loud.
0: Right, I don't want to mess it up.
2: So, pronunciation.
0: Sorry. Oh my goodness, I'm left out here. Okay, I'm just gonna murder this, and we'll just be fine. K h o i k h o i. She is has shown and has been shown in freak shows and studies in the early 1800s. More information can be found at www.shhistory.org.za forward slash people. Forward slash Sarah Sartaj Bartman and there's a hyphen between Sarah Sartaj and Bartman. Sarah was used to help emphasize the stereotype that Africans were oversexed and of a lesser race. And let me see what else I've got going on here. Here is the this week's Clouder query that you can answer on our social media platforms. How might the world change for the better if fat antagonism no longer existed? How might it change for the better? If we took a weight neutral approach to health and wellness, what might it look like in good ways? If we gasp, devalue the concept of health. All right. And coming up next week, we've got a guest. Well, our guest will be Rio. They go by, they, them. And we're discussing life coaching and fashion modeling. Ooh, I got to be here. I am going to be here. I'm the only person that's going to be hosting that. I guess I'll be here. Yes, I'll be here interviewing Rio. And we're going to discuss coaching and life coaching and fashion modeling. Denary, thank you so much for coming in today. And giving us your wisdom, your passion, your compassion, your empathy, and for educating us, for doing this emotional labor for us. Thank you. I just, I hope that people will jump in and uh, get ready to support you on Patreon. All right? Absolutely. Thank um, and you. I would just
2: like to shout out the next Twitter chat for Fat Acceptance Month is tomorrow, Tuesday, the 17th at right. 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time.
0: Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. You got that. All right. Okay. We're ready to drop the outro and be out, I guess. Thanks everybody. Bye, for in. Take thank care.
1: Jennifer would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. If you'd like to catch us live, join us on Mondays at twitch.tv forward slash gender master show notes will appear in the edited version of the show on Fridays on both YouTube and podcasting platforms. If you have a question you would like the host to answer or are gender diverse and would like to request an interview,
0: please send an email to genderfulpodcast at gmail.com or sign up via the website at genderfulpodcast.com.
1: As a gender diverse community, The clutter wants to assure our listeners that we are prepared to moderate our spaces. We will get positive and negative feedback on these shows and topics, and we have a moderation team on our channels, socials, and Discord server ready to deal with this. Please
0: join our Discord server at discord.gg forward slash Meowster to meet the community and get a regular digest of solidarity resources. You can also support us with subscriptions on Patreon, following and reviewing us on your favorite podcasting platform, or engaging with our posts and content on social media
1: at Jennifer Pod and GenderMeowster. If you could take a few moments to also rate the show, we will post any five-star reviews on our socials, so get creative. Mention a special interest of your own, a project you're working on, or even say hi to your comfort person in your review. What power?
0: This show is made possible by volunteers, tips, and subscriptions. Shout out to those helping us coordinate guests, edit the podcast, moderate the live chat, and post on our socials.
1: Artist credit for Jennifer Genderful's theme song is called Hope by Free Range Megs, aka Soma. The Gendermeaster logo was designed by That's Barnaby and edited with consent by Trans Griffin. Genderful's pre-show is wrangled by Juice Tex. Genderful is edited and mixed by Trans Griffin and Alexis Fandom. Genderful's social media is managed by Queer to Help. Genderful is hosted by Atlas O. Phoenix and Gendermeaster. Genderful is the intellectual property of Gender Master. All rights reserved. Trans rights are human rights. That's right.